Now, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 6, we will see how the Lord answers prayer this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, to whom Peter, uh, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, one of the primary themes that we have seen, particularly from chapter 4, on concerns the authority of Christ that has been looming over everything that we have seen. And it really culminates here. If you go back, you remember in chapter 4, Satan offers Jesus an easy way to authority and to victory, saying, to you I will give all this authority, all the kingdoms of the world, for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you will, if you then will worship me, all of this will be yours. Later on in chapter 4, after Jesus' initial exercise of authoritative teaching, Luke describes his rejection When they heard these things, all in the synagogue, we're told, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the synagogue and out of the town. And they brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Undaunted, Jesus went to Capernaum, where his authority was then recognized In Luke chapter 4, verse 32, it says that the people were amazed, astonished at his teaching because his words possessed authority. And again in verse 36, they were all amazed, said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Luke then links a series of episodes that explicitly demonstrate Jesus' authority. We see Jesus laboring into the night, healing and rebuking both demons and illnesses. In chapter 5, his authority is showcased when he calls Peter and James and John to fish for men. In chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, you see the dramatic healing of the man full of leprosy, again demonstrating his authority and his ability to eradicate the effects of sin. 
Jesus couples his healing with a, the, of the paralytic with the sovereign declaration of his authority to forgive sin. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said. I say to you, paralytic man, rise up, take up your bed, and go home. That's followed in verses 27 through 32 by an assertion of authority in his calling of the sinful tax collector, Levi. Matthew, to come and follow him. And that authority motif carries on in Jesus' claim that he is the divine bridegroom and the implicit giver of new wine. And then in chapter 6, Jesus makes a dramatic declaration of his authority back in verse 5 by saying, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And now in verses 12 through 16, that theme of authority comes to its climax in Jesus' calling of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. It was an act of momentous importance, both for the nation of Israel and for the church. Twelve apostles were named in implicit reference to their call to minister to the twelve tribes of Israel, ultimately their names would be preserved in the very architecture of heaven, as we're told in Revelation 21-14, which says that the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, of course, there's a little bit of a change that goes on between Luke chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 21 because, well, there's Judas. His name is not on that heavenly city. Probably Matthias, but we'll find out when we get there. The call of the twelve then provides us an opportunity to reflect on where and how Jesus got his authority and upon the effect of his authority on the lives of his followers. The first thing that we've got to note in this regard is that the authority of the incarnate one was a delegated authority. It was a dependent authority. You see this, for instance, when you take note of the fact that Jesus' authority is rooted in prayer. Look at verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer. This was Jesus' custom. He would often go off by himself to pray. Luke gives us other examples of this. Earlier, after spending a good part of the night healing the sick and the diseased in Capernaum, we're told in chapter 4 that he departed and went out to a desolate place. Similarly, amid the busyness that came from ministering to large crowds after his healing of the leper, Luke states that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus understood that in the midst of the busyness and pressures of ministry, he needed to get away for private prayer. 
But what tends to get our attention here, at least it gets my attention, is that he spent the whole night in prayer to God. The entire night. If you're looking at this from a Jewish first century perspective, Luke's probably describing sundown to sunup. Jesus spent 10 hours in devoted, concerted, focused prayer. That's what the language here means. The Greek word translated, he spent the whole night, speaks of a perseverance in prayer. The Greek, it wasn't intermittent. He didn't pray for a few minutes and take a nap and then get up and pray some more. His prayer was energetic prayer. It was persevering prayer. As Jesus prayed on the mountainside, the moon ran its course. And before he was through, the sun was coming up on the horizon. And it was only then, when day came, verse 13 says, that Jesus chose the twelve. And that's why Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. It's impossible to escape that conclusion here. He had huge decisions to make in regard to who should comprise the twelve. Jesus was and is God, to be sure, but he had taken on humanity as well, though without sin. And though he was God, he had placed the exercise of his divine attributes at the discretion of his Father. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he speaks about Jesus emptying himself in the incarnation. And thus there were things that Jesus did not know such as the timing of his second coming, which he said only the Father knew. And so Jesus needed the aid of his Father in order to determine who the twelve should be. And as you see in verse 13, at this point Jesus had many more than twelve disciples. Typically when we hear the word disciple, we automatically think of the twelve, but scripture uses that term in a number of different ways. There is a wide range of meaning in regard to the term disciples. Sometimes it does refer to the twelve. Sometimes it refers to the larger group of those who were following Jesus, among whom would be those like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Sometimes it even refers to unbelievers. You might remember that after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. John tells us that the next day the crowd followed him across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus knows why they did so. He says essentially because they wanted another meal. He says you seek me not because you saw signs but because you ate the loaves and were filled. But Jesus wasn't some kind of entertainer doing tricks, nor had he come in order to fill people's bellies. And so he didn't feed them again. He taught. He taught that he was the source and the center of salvation, that if they were going to be right with God, it was going to come through him. 
quite a bold statement for someone to make. If it's not true, that person is a nut. He taught that God is sovereign and that God gives to Jesus those whom he would save. He taught about the inability of anyone to come to the Father unless the Father draws them to the Son. He taught about the necessity of the coming sacrifice of his body and blood in order to accomplish redemption. And after all that was taught, what happened to the crowd? John writes in John chapter 6, verses 66, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So the word disciples is used in a lot of different ways, and we need to keep that in mind as we read this passage. Jesus had many who were following him, and out of that multitude, he needed to choose 12. That's why he spent the night in prayer. Three years later, at the end of his life, Jesus would lift the 12 to God in prayer saying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And the context demonstrates Jesus is specifically speaking of the twelve. Prayer was everything to Jesus, Though through, through this dependent prayer, Jesus lived a life of flawless perfection so that he could say, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as my Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. All of that gives us the background for Jesus' night of prayer before choosing the twelve. Though he was the eternal son, though he created everything, though he is the alpha and omega, though everything is moving toward and will culminate in him, he could not live his incarnate life apart from dependent prayer. Now the spiritual logic of this ought to be inescapable. If the eternal Son of God could not function in his incarnate state without dependent prayer, how much more essential is it for us as God's adopted sons and daughters? How arrogant is it to understand the necessity of prayer for Jesus, but to reject it for ourselves? Too often. Our prayer is not dependent prayer. It is obligatory prayer. If we pray, we pray because we think it's something we should do. Christians pray. And I claim to be a Christian, so I guess I should pray. We have no conviction that it's really necessary. There's no sense in which 
We really believe that we need to do so. But that's simply because we don't really understand who we are. We don't understand what prayer is for. We don't understand our need. Jesus didn't say, apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is the logic of true spiritual power and true spirituality. Utter, complete dependence upon the God who has made us his. So when we see Jesus at prayer, we understand that his authority, here to be seen in his choosing of the twelve, is a dependent authority. But dependence is not the only characteristic of Jesus' authority, which we see in this passage. His authority is also an effective authority. Look at verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them whom he also named as apostles. This, brothers and sisters, is sovereign, divine election. No one was seeking this appointment. No one volunteered. No one campaigned. They were divinely chosen. And later, when opposition arose and persecution came, these men would be able to draw comfort from that. When they sat in a prison cell, when they waited for the stones to fly at them, when they saw the lions bearing down upon them, they would comfort themselves in the fact that Jesus had chosen them. He, not they, were responsible for that choice and for their position as apostles. Their number matches the tribes of Israel, of course. They would be sent out as the Messiah's official emissaries to the nation, and as such, they would have special power and authority. We will see that as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. After Pentecost, of course, they would become witnesses and leaders of the new covenant community called the Christian Church. Some of them would become divinely inspired authors of the New Testament. Now, we don't know the order in which Jesus called out their names. Luke has a list that begins with Peter, ends with Judas Iscariot, as do the other lists in Scripture, though in regard to the others, the order changes depending on the gospel that you're reading, telling us it's not really that important. The list here in Luke reads this way, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now today, every name in this list has a 
notable ring for those of us who are familiar with the scripture, even the least known, such as Bartholomew or Jude. But when Jesus chose them, they were all unknown. All except Judas were Galileans. The sophisticates of Jerusalem would have considered them to be the hicks of their day. Four of them were fishermen. One was a hated tax collector. Not one of them was famous or noble or well-connected. All, with the likely exception of Matthew, because, well, he was a tax collector and would have been corrupt and grasping for all he could get, all but him were poor. Not one was a scribe or a priest or an elder or a ruler of the people. They were, as their detractors would later label them, as Luke records for us in Acts, they were uneducated, common men. Yet they formed the nucleus of a fellowship that conquered the ancient world with the grace of God. And when we get to heaven, we will find the names of these ordinary men emblazoned on the twelve foundations of the new Jerusalem. When God calls ordinary men and women to serve him, it is always effectual regardless of their apparent abilities or lack of them. When God's call came to Gideon, you'll remember, Gideon objected because he felt himself too ordinary to accomplish the task that God had set before him. Gideon said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But even as he said that, he reveals himself to be the kind of man that God can use. Gideon would have to depend upon the Lord. Since the Midianite host was like locusts in abundance, Gideon naturally recruited a vast army, recruited 32,000 so that he could match them strength for strength when the battle came. Would have been crazy to do otherwise. It's what you or I, anyone, would do. But then we read that the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So instead of allowing Gideon to increase the army, the Lord decreased it. First, all who were afraid were told to go home. I'd probably be in that group. That reduced the army by 22,000. And then 10,000 who remain were ordered to drink water from the river, and only the 300 who drank with their hands were retained. If you got down and stuck your face in the water to drink, you're out too. 
From a military standpoint, the proper odds for launching an attack are three soldiers to one in your favor, of course. When Gideon amassed 32,000 troops, the odds were four soldiers to one in the enemy's favor. When Israel was reduced to 10,000, the odds became 45 to 1. And to 300, the odds were 750 to 1. From ground level, that's insane. Especially the 300. When they went forth to battle, remember what they were armed with? Trumpets and pitchers. But it was during this conscious renunciation of natural power, this profound and obvious dependence upon God, that God was pleased to work through them. And humble Gideon led his 300 to a mighty victory. One of the supreme glories of God's call is that our weakness is the opportunity for him to demonstrate his power. And this has always been gloriously true. You look at men like Moses, David, Jeremiah. Oswald Chambers once wrote this, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced their dependence on their natural abilities and resources. That's the gospel. (laughs) The gospel is all about the realization that I'm nothing and I'm nobody. And that which is required of me is impossible for me. God requires perfection. God requires sinlessness. And if that's the standard, then every one of us fails. There's no one who has ever met that standard except for Jesus. That's why we need his righteousness. We need to depend upon him rather than ourselves. And the gospel is that which says to us, you cannot do it yourself. It is impossible. God has to do it for you. If you try to do it yourself, you will fail. I spent a lot of time talking to my dad about the gospel. 
And I don't know what happened toward the end of his life. I still hold out hope that he came to understand and believe. But there were times when we'd sit and we'd talk and my dad would agree with everything I said as I tried to explain the gospel to him. Because he's not going to disagree with me. I've got the seminary degree. He'd nod his head. Yep, yep, yep. And then I'd stop. And his next statement would inevitably be something like, yeah, and, and if you just keep the Ten Commandments, you'll be fine. God helps those who help themselves. Didn't get it. Because that's not the truth. That's not what the scripture teaches. That's not the gospel. The gospel tells me I can't help myself. The gospel tells me I can't keep the Ten Commandments. Not one of them. But the gospel tells me that Jesus did it for me. Everything that is necessary has been done. But I need to receive it in total and complete dependence. And so we say, the gospel, salvation, is by grace, unmerited favor, grace alone. By faith alone, with nothing of my works added to it. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. The only way we get to that point where my salvation is for the glory of God alone is getting through the other points of that. Recognizing that my salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This Dependence upon God for everything. Seeing the strength of God in the weakness of his people is a truth that has been consistently confirmed throughout the history of the church. And is, as we are seeing this morning, powerfully verified by scripture from beginning to end. This should encourage Not only those who think little of themselves, but also those who are unusually gifted. Because even the most gifted do not have written within themselves the ability to succeed in God's calling. No matter what you think of yourselves, your abilities, your talents, your mind, your compassion, it's not enough. And in the sight of God, it's nothing. It only becomes something when you recognize that you are who you are because God made you that way. God's given you those gifts. God's given you those abilities. But even there, left to your own devices... 
all of those wonderful things about you are evil in the sight of God. Unless he takes you and changes you. Unless you depend upon him. That great apostle born out of time, Paul, had a profound grasp of this truth. Originally, he was wealthy and privileged and connected. But when he came to Christ, he renounced his dependence upon human capacity and human giftedness. His original name, Saul, named after, of course, that proud Benjamite king, Saul became Paul. Paulus, which means small, which I always thought was interesting given the fact that King Saul was said to be a very large man. So he went from big Saul to small Paul. And his writings powerfully substantiate the fact that man's ordinariness, even his weaknesses, provide ready ground for God's extraordinary power to be demonstrated. In discussing his own apostolic ministry, Paul made this unforgettable observation. We have this treasure in, remember what he said? Jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. That's the whole point. God is concerned with magnifying himself with demonstrating his power to the world. And he does that as he utilizes jars of clay like us. Paul summarized the secret of his ministry by referring to the ancient custom of hiding priceless treasure in common earthen clay pots beneath the earth. The treasure for Paul was the gospel and the jars of clay. That's us. Frail humanity. The glorious gospel is committed to common, frail human beings so that the immensity of the power will be seen to be God's and not ours. Clearly, then, an awareness of one's weakness, one's ordinariness, can be an asset For gospel ministry, for such a recognition keeps us dependent upon the power of God. Conversely, if we think too much of our extraordinary gifts, we can be tempted to rely upon natural gifts to achieve supernatural ends. And that's not what God wants of his people or his church. A full-blown expression of this principle is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says that God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. How can you be weak and strong at the same time? Well, Paul says, when I'm weak in myself, when I recognize who I really am, 
and place my dependence upon God, then any strength that is evident in me is not my own strength. It is his strength bestowed upon me. And we need to embrace that paradox. For the men and women God has used have always lived with the reality that they are but clay. Rather than focusing on their weakness, however, they have made it their business to rely upon him. And from this flowed the surpassing greatness of his power through their lives and into the world. Jesus' vast authority while here on earth was a dependent authority. He lived a life of dependent prayer, but his incarnation and death were followed, of course, by a glorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And brothers and sisters, that's what God's concerned with. His glory Far more than your comfort. Far more than the ease of your life. Far more than what you accomplish. Even if you're accomplishing it for him. God is concerned with his glory. How dare we live in anything but humble prayerful dependence upon him who was our model while he was here on earth and who is now our intercessor and sovereign Lord sitting at the right hand of the Father. The logic of spirituality demands a life of dependent prayer. Jesus' authority is eternally effectual. His sovereignty called 12 nobodies whose names will forever be written on the foundations of the new Jerusalem. And when he chooses nobody's like us, he writes our names in the book of life. As it was with the apostles, the call to ministry that comes to each one of us. And I'm not talking about professional ministry. I'm talking about ministry which, is, which belongs to every child of God. When it comes to us, when God grants that privilege to us of serving him, he gives us what we need to accomplish it. It comes from him. So that he will be glorified. Our ordinariness is the occasion of his extraordinariness. Our weakness, the occasion of his power, because all authority in heaven and earth are his. Nothing makes sense except absolute submission to his will and a humble, prayerful dependence in every part of our lives. Everything that we do. Jesus came. 
And Jesus determined that he would be obedient to the Father. And the Father told him, Choose twelve. And he prayed. And he chose. And the world has never been the same. We're sitting here this morning because, God, because Jesus chose 12. Uh, have you ever thought about that? This is something that runs through my mind every now and then. You know, I'm, I'm a church history guy. And I like to think back on how things happen, there is an unbroken line for those of us who are in Christ. Someone came to you and shared the gospel with you. Or someone preached the gospel and you heard it, watched it. Or someone printed out a tract and you read it. Or someone published a Bible and you took it up. And that person, whoever spoke to you or preached or printed something, someone shared the gospel in some form with them. And on, and on, and on, back, and back, and back we go. Until we get where? The apostles. Who went out through the Roman world and proclaimed the gospel. And planted churches. And here we are 2,000 2000 years later. Until someone decided, you know what, we need a church in Mayapak Falls. And that was 180 years ago. And we're still carrying on. Because this is how God is bringing glory to his name. Weak, sinful, frail people like us are in that line. We have a role to play until Jesus returns. And I hope you'll pray with me That until that time, we sitting here and all those people that we don't even know who will be sitting here a generation from now will continue to live and pray in dependence upon our God. Father, make it so. We can do nothing without you. We are nothing without you, but sinners in need of a Savior. And you have provided us with that Savior through your Son, Jesus Christ. And he has 
been obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Thank you, Father. May we be obedient as well, that in our weakness you may be seen to be strong. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.